Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, September 10th, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And this is our weekly look around the uh, landscape of Division Three football. Here as we finish up week two of the Division Three football season, we've got some teams that are surprisingly 2-0, and maybe a team or two that's surprisingly 0-2, and uh, of course... Uh, a bunch of teams that just got their weeks uh, and their season started this past week. And, uh, Keith, why don't we start with those? Uh, one of them, the, uh, w- well, two games, I, I think, featuring uh, a highly ranked team against a team that was, you know, certainly worthy of consideration for, for the top 25. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Bethel Warburg off the top of my head, but also uh, Kane going to Mary Harden Baylor. Kane coming off the loss last week, the surprise loss at Albright, and then taking a pretty long trip in week two. Yeah, and, and it kind of, you know, when you have that, that second game where you try to test yourself and you play Mary Harden Baylor, it kind of retroactively made me think, man, they really needed to win that Albright game, that opener, because, you know, you take that trip to Texas, it's, un, it's already unlikely you're going to beat the number four team in the country. Um, and, and it really, you know, I got a chance to watch a little bit of that game. And, and Kane made some plays, you know, their athleticism in some ways matched up with Mary Harden Baylor, but I don't think physically they were really. Uh, any kind of match for for the Mary Harden Baylor run game, and that's kind of how how the crew always gets teams. You know, they they just sort of get five good linemen. They run their their same you know p- package of run plays. They get on teams and they grind. And, and they got Darius Wilson in the backfield, and he broke off uh, at least one long run that I can remember. And uh, you know, it, it was pretty much a, a typical Mary Harden Baylor, a typical you'd say East. Eastern team introduction to Mary Harden Baylor football. Yeah, in fact, uh, Wilson had a 65-yard touchdown run to end the first quarter, and then a 73-yard touchdown run in the first snap of quarter number three, and he ended up the day with uh, just 155 yards, 165 yards on 12 carries, uh, three touchdowns. You know, it it sounds like uh, you know Mary Harden Baylor is pretty much more of the same. And we we talk about, for example, so many times, for example, they. Um, have swapped out that offensive line, and I can't tell you how many times they've done it. They've got a guy, uh, Nate Mankin, who's uh, playing in the NFL this year, who is uh, a product of that offensive line, and they seem to be turning over two or three guys there on a regular basis. But, you know, the the guys we're talking about who have uh, done most of the ball handling over the last uh, two or three years are still there. Their core in the uh, backfield is still around. And And you need to have some kind of stability year to year in a big program, you know, we, we talked about this last week with regard to Mount Union and Whitewater where, you know, they lost big players, the, the name guys, and they have the same defense back. Or, you know, there's there's always guys, you know, those rosters are usually two and three players deep. And when you have that much competition in a program, you know, 100, 100 if you're in the WIAC, 150 or 200 if you're talking about Wesley or Mary or, or Mount, uh, Mount Union or Mary Harden-Baylor, you know, the players that are sometimes the number twos are, are hungry for their chance. And, and when they get the chance there, they're not going to blow it. And so you have a, a, a big program and you have so much competition that I think the cream rises to the top in those programs. And so it, it's, you're only looking for five linemen out of a group of maybe 20 guys that, that can play, uh, you know, at Mary Harden Baylor. And so by the time you get to, you know, where you're replacing guys, you may have a junior that's been in the program and in the system for a couple of years. And also to a lot of the big programs are running JV programs, uh, where they get to work on the offense for a couple of years before the guys actually step in in a varsity game. The uh, you know if you thought we talked too much about Whitewater and Mount Union last week, congratulations. Relax. Neither of them played this past weekend, so we've got a chance to focus a little bit on everybody else. Um, 
you know, we, we've been saying this for a couple of years now, but just as a reminder to anybody who, you know, may have uh, dropped back into Division Three football directly out of 2004, um, you know, Mary Harden Baylor is not just the uh, the the one dimensional run team anymore. As long as Ladarrell Bailey's been there uh, under center or back in the pistol, I guess is probably more uh, more accurate. Uh, they've been a threat to throw the ball, and he was uh, really accurate on Saturday, 20 of 24 passing for 193 yards. And this is after you know they lost uh, his big target from last season. Yeah, and and I, I'm still stuck on that number, 20 of 24, Pat, where you. You know, a lot of times you see these teams that are so run dominated and they're trying to throw just to keep keep the other defenses honest. And, you know, sometimes the numbers aren't very pretty. Sometimes they or, or they just take a couple of deep shots just to loosen up the defense. But 20 or 24 is uh, is pretty serious. We're going to talk a little bit also about uh, Division Three. what happened in Division Three on Sunday. We don't get a chance to do that too often. But, uh, you know, talking about Mary Harden-Baylor, uh, Mary Harden Baylor alum Jarrell Freeman, the 2007 D3Football.com Defensive Player of the Year, scored a touchdown on Saturday. Uh, Cecil Shorts, the 2009 D3Football.com Offensive Player of the Year, scored a touchdown. Uh, he's a Mountain Union grad. Scored a touchdown for Jacksonville. And then uh, Pierre Garçon, who was not an Offensive Player of the Year, only because he happened to be around at the exact same time as both Justin Beaver and Nate Kamick. Uh, he scored a, a touchdown in the, continuing his uh, illustrious NFL career, this time in his uh, debut with the Washington Redskins. And, uh, you know, Keith, we, we talked about it in kickoff that you don't have to be a member of one of those top two programs to get uh, NFL recognition. And we got 14 guys between... Uh, active rosters, uh, the physically unable to perform list, the IR, and uh, and the practice rosters in the NFL this year from a, a pretty wide variety of schools, and they looked uh, pretty good on Sunday. Yeah, you know, the, Pat, there are another couple guys who, who didn't happen to score touchdowns but got the chance to play on Sunday as well. Uh, Andy Studebaker from, from Wheaton uh, ended up starting for the Chiefs when uh, Tom Bali was um, suspended. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Nate Mankin. And, uh, you know, Alex Tanney is still around. Uh, you know, the, the the thing that we talked about in kickoff was that the players, uh, you know, they're the guys from Mount Union and they're guys from Whitewater and Mary Harden Baylor and even Wheaton, you know, you could consider a, a semi-elite program. But then there, there are players who got their NFL shots this uh, this offseason or this preseason, you say, you know, from Monmouth, from Beloit and places like that where where it really shows the depth of talent in Division Three, And it's exciting to see on a... Sunday, you know, to turn on the TV and you have Fred Jackson carrying the ball for the Bills, although he did get hurt uh, in, in his game. And then, and then you, you know, you flip the channel and Pierre Garcon has an 88-yard touchdown catch and you get to the fourth quarter. You know, if you're watching that, what is the red zone channel with all the different touchdowns are on, you know, Cecil Shorts is catching one. And, and sometimes, too, a D3 guy like Shorts, uh, like Jarrell Freeman, you know, has their great D3 career and then it takes them a couple years to, to break out in the NFL and, and you almost forget that they're there, you know, and, and, and then all of a sudden you turn on the, the TV one Sunday and there they are uh, making a big play. That's, I think that's really exciting. And I think it's, it's exciting for us, you know, to watch the whole division, uh, to see that it's not just coming from one or two schools, that it's coming from, from a lot of different places. Uh, you know, Jarrell Freeman, I think, is maybe one of the best examples of, of a D3 guy who, who had the talent. He had to go play in Canada, you know, and, and take his shot a couple times. Um, in the NFL before he could really stick, and now he starts, and then he had, a, I think, a four-yard interception return on uh, on Sunday. Yeah, and uh, you know, 
Fred Jackson is a a really a, a good example of that as well. A guy who had to play. Uh, he played in uh, an indoor league. I don't even know the name of because it was not Arena or Arena Two. Uh, and then went and played in the uh, uh, NFL Europa or whatever it was called then. Uh, Arkel Trelak, if anybody remembers him, uh, Cortland State player who got uh, some time in the NFL, took another long circuitous route. So it's good to see. Uh, Freeman really sticking with it. He was one of the uh, top defensive players in the CFL over the last couple of seasons for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Uh, so good to see him getting another shot at the NFL. He had a uh, a cup of coffee with the Titans in training camp immediately out of school, but uh, didn't uh, didn't get a chance to stick around. So who would have thought we'd have had three touchdowns? None of them would have been by Fred Jackson. And we're talking about great Division Three performances. And we don't even talk about London Fletcher, who's been the standard uh, bearer in Division Three football or in the NFL for Division Three football over the last now decade or so. That guy has been in the league for a uh, for a long time. So as we mentioned, we're two games under our belts in uh, in the Division Three football season. Uh, we saw Mary Harden Baylor get underway this week. Uh, I mentioned. Uh, in passing, uh, Bethel and Warburg. Remember, Warburg uh, in week one just demolished McMurray by the score of 73-0. to zero. You hear how I intentionally kind of mispronounced McMurray just so nobody thinks it's that school from Texas that's not in Division Three <laughs> anymore. Um, and then Bethel comes to town. Bethel playing its first game. Bethel breaking in a brand-new quarterback. Bethel on the road uh, against Warburg with a brand-new quarterback but playing the second game of his career, uh, playing at home. And it's just a massive swing, you know, the the swing from playing, you know, number 225 to number 15. Yeah, it's a 94-point difference, Pat, between week one and week two for Wartburg to win 73-0. to zero. And it was something that, that was hinted at in, in the triple take on Friday morning, you know, that the, the difference in talent in playing a, a Mac Murray and then turning around and playing Bethel. And, you know, the, 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 it's just night and day. The Mayak is probably... Well, we know we know because we rank the the conferences every preseason and again in in September. Uh, you know, it's one of the five or six strongest conferences in the country right now. Its teams are eight, I got eight, nine, eight to see a thirteen and zero. So a Mayak team hasn't lost a game yet, and uh, Bethel, you know, one of the top two or three teams in the Mayak. So it's such a huge talent disparity, and I was impressed. You know, not not just by Bethel winning that game, but to hold a team uh, that scored seventy three and and had a ton of offensive confidence uh, to, to, for, for Bethel. I was impressed that they shut Warburg out. You know, Bethel uh, had been quarterbacked by uh, Josh Acree over the last few years. He was uh, more primarily known for his running, I would say, than for his uh, for his passing. Eric Peterson comes in uh, for his first, uh, you know, to take over as starter at Bethel, and he's 20 of 28 passing for 214. Mitch Hallstrom is a guy who came to campus as a safety a couple years ago. Now he's a junior. He caught 10 balls for 109 yards. And, and Bethel seems to have kind of really tooled their, really retooled their offense, or at the very least, since we kind of almost don't know this early on, it could just be that Bethel saw something in Warburg's defensive game plan that they really thought they could exploit, so they went that direction. And, and Bethel is, is one of those teams, you know, that you can categorize some years, at least with, with you know, the Mary Harden Baylor and, and maybe somebody like Salisbury, who Bethel doesn't doesn't uh, do a lot of things they don't have to do. They don't try to go with the trends. You know, if, if they have a good running back and, and a quarterback that runs, they'll just run the ball all the time. And, and they get they probably fit more in the mold of a team that finds out what it does well and then perfects that rather than trying to beat you with with trickery or formations or motion, all these different things. 
Uh, I saw St. Thomas play River Falls on Saturday, um, you know, looking ahead to when St. Thomas might play Bethel. And, of course, St. Thomas plays St. John's this week, and that is a, a, a game that we will talk about a little bit later. But, um, yeah, there was, a, there was a ton of offense in this game uh, and, a, and a ton of passing. Matt O'Connell threw the ball 53 times, uh, completed 35 of them for 403 yards. When St. Thomas was in uh, control in the, uh, in the third quarter and in the fourth quarter, they didn't run the ball to try to grind out the clock. They really kept throwing the ball, and they kept having some success on River Falls. And again, I was I was thinking if that's you know the same sort of thing I was talking about a minute ago, where you know you 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 see these games early on in the season, and you wonder you know it's a new quarterback, have they really changed their system, or is it just you know based are, are they doing something for this particular game based on an individual matchup, and you don't really know until you get later in the season. Yeah, it is kind of hard, and and that probably that same theory extends to the top twenty-five, Pat. And you know, if we get to talking about that at some point in the podcast, we can discuss it some more. It's it's hard when you just have that one piece of data, or maybe now two pieces to work with. The one game is what, things that happen were they a fluke? Were they something that, like you mentioned, just exploited for one game because there was one weakness or one matchup that? that a team had an advantage on. Was there a game like uh, like St. John Fisher and Washington Jefferson this weekend where really W&J outplayed uh, the Cardinals for most of that game and St. John Fisher put together a rally, came back and won, got out of there with, with a win, you know, an impressive road win against a uh, really fairly successful team. You know, sometimes it's one of those games where you got dominated, but you ended up squeaking out a win. And so it's hard to just take the, the results from week one week two and and draw grand conclusions from them but that in a way that's great for us because it gives us reason to to pay attention the rest of the season but considering it's kind of all we have to go on at this point we do try to draw conclusions from them and then that's how we have this list of of you know two and oh and and oh and two teams that we're a little surprised by or even a one and one team a great example of i think what you just talked about was is rowan uh rowan knocked off delaware valley in week one got into the top 25 that way. Then they go up to Merrimack, which is a Division II school in a traditionally not strong Division II conference. I think we can say that with, uh, with, with some degree of, uh, of confidence. Uh, and they lost in a 30-7 a, you know, game that was not particularly close. Rowan uh, falls back out of the poll. And is it because, we, you know, do people disregard the loss because it was to a Division II school? Or do you disregard the win because Delaware Valley, the team that Rowan beat last week, went and lost again this week? Well, I think it's a little bit of, of the second thing, Pat, that you mentioned. The more information you get, you start to put it together. And, and you know, DelVal came into the season ranked number nine, uh, was was a team in the playoffs that, we, that I thought um, – you know, went out maybe around earlier than they should have uh, against St. John Fisher. Um, and now, you know, that that's a team that's lost its past three games. You know, they lost their last playoff game, came into the season with, with big expectations. The Rowan game for, for, for them, Rowan DelVal is a good test, you know, between the MAC and the NJAC. Took a couple of pretty powerful programs in the East. And um, you, you can almost write off, not right off, but you can you could say, well, it's a good opener for DelVal. It's a tough loss for them. They'll probably bounce back from it. Then they they turn around and lose to, to Light coming, and then you say, okay, well now, you know, even though Light goes probably in the same category as Rowan as far as being a fairly strong team from the East, you start to wonder, you know, what's what's really wrong with DelVal? And sort of by default, you, t- you maybe take a little bit of credit away from Rowan and from from Lyco for for beating them because the the win is not as impressive. 
uh, when when that team turns around and loses again. Yeah, there's this whole little tangled web: Delval, Rowan, Lyco, Brockport State, Buff State, uh, Cortland. There's this, this um, you know, not just because of course the the Mac and Jack challenge, but of course uh, Buffalo State and the Empire Eight and having the traditional rivalry with Brockport. There's this whole little interplay of games that, as the season goes on. Uh, and we begin to see what the rest of the track record for some of these teams looks like. We'll begin to figure out what to, what sense we can make of the games that were just played the last two weeks. So in the MAC, for example, uh, you know, Delval is uh, Delval's played Lyco. Lyco plays Lebval coming up this week. Uh, Albright's one and zero at the top of the conference as well. There's four teams one and zero. The other one is Widener. Uh, Widener's two and zero, but they have played Western Connecticut State and they have played Kings. And then they go to Misericordia, and then they host Wilkes, and, and Wilkes hasn't been very good in the past few years. It could be you could get all the way to Week Five before we find out what Widener's all about. And, and that's you know tough when you have that the you know the big conference, and you, you know you just play that one non-conference game. And for Widener, yeah, we we Pat we we talked about it. it you know we have no idea. You, you you just can't take a top twenty-five team. And and say okay, Western Connecticut, Misericordia, Kings. You know that doesn't tell tell us anything about their top twenty five worthiness right now. You know Widener's outscored its first two opponents one hundred four to twenty three, which is pretty impressive. But again, you know it, with respect to the top twenty five, you look at who it's who it's come against. Albright, on the other hand, you know the win against Kane. Maybe Kane is is another example. They're one of the surprise zero and two teams, and and they may be right there with Delval in terms of a team who who. We were, you know, that looks like a real impressive win in week one. And then, uh, you know, you see the, the losses start to pile up and, and you start to wonder how impressive it was. I still think, uh, you know, Led Val, like, oh, we'll find out a little bit about the Mac this week. Albright at the top of that conference. And, you know, Del Val's not out of it. You know, they're just one loss in, in the conference. And we've seen, especially in, the, in these Eastern leagues, um, you know, we've seen teams win it with with a loss, sometimes with two losses, and still get into the, the postseason. So uh, it could happen, but that one's a, that's a tangled web. I think that the NJAX flipped on its head too. Uh, Brockport State, for example, uh, you know, just dominated Lyco on the scoreboard, twenty four to two in the, on the opener. Uh, you know, went up, uh, went up. Sorry, uh, stayed at home, hosted Buffalo State, beat them thirty eight twenty four a week after uh, Buff State had had you know more or less had its way offensively against Cortland State to uh, to go 1 and 0 and um you know Buff State still threw around the ball quite a bit uh Casey Cass however was held just under 300 yards as opposed to being held just under 500 yards the week before that's another it's another team I you know be honest with you um based on what they've done so far this year uh I think we say Lebval's the best team in the MAC right now uh, and I think Brockport stayed in the NJAC. And that's not something we would have said two weeks ago. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but both those teams have earned it. And, and so that's that's kind of the, the fun of, obviously, the season getting underway. and You start to reevaluate what you think you know, because that, everything we know in the preseason is, is, is going off history, going off returning starters. But, uh, but now we're going off you know, real games. And, and to see Brockport... You know, hold Buffalo State to I think 321 yards of total offense a week after Buff State goes for 706 against Cortland State. Uh, you know, signals that that Brockport State is is for real. And the NJAC, there's you know, no conference games have been played yet, so so everything we see right now doesn't have any effect on who who wins the uh, the conference or who takes the playoff bid out of the NJAC. But it's certainly 
uh, a little eye-opening to see Brockport State at the top, you know, TCNJ, Rowan. And then on the other end of that, you know, Montclair State's 0-2. Cortland, you know, got, got dominated by Brockport, by uh, Buffalo State in their first game. And, uh, and, and Kane is at the bottom there with, uh, you know, you see Kane, Montclair State, Morrisville State at the bottom of the NJAC standings right now. You know, two of these kids are doing their own thing. One of the other uh, games, a uh, big game, obviously in the in the top twenty-five was Wesley and Salisbury, and these are teams that usually meet uh, more around mid mid to late October. Uh, but because of uh, Salisbury having a conference schedule uh, this year uh, and uh, af- after last year, uh, for the first time in in quite some time, uh, the the schedule for them swaps around a little bit and these uh rivals it's called the route 13 rivalry because us 13 runs through both Del- dover delaware and salisbury maryland uh was played in salisbury uh in a bit of rain shall we say on saturday night but uh wesley continued its recent dominance of this matchup and, and you use the term dominance in refer referring to wins in the, in this series pat because almost every time these two teams play it's a good game and wesley doesn't you know, by the numbers, they don't dominate Salisbury, but they have them figured out. And that's probably the difference, I think, in in having a triple option team, a team that excels at, at doing some of the same things and doing them well. And then Wesley, which is familiar with Salisbury, you know, knows them intimately. Obviously, they played each other, uh, you know, every year going back as far as we can remember. Pat, and then you also have the fact that Wesley, you know, talent-wise is built – or is, is, is building itself to try to compete with Whitewater, to try to compete with Mount Union. And, and so the, the offensive linemen that, for Salisbury, dominate a lot of other teams don't dominate the Wesley defensive linemen and linebackers. And so that, that's more, a more even matchup for those two teams. And I think the real crazy thing that, that stands out about these two teams meeting in week two is they play two of the tougher schedules we, we see this season. And, uh, you know, Wesley sort of by design and by necessity – and then Salisbury, of course, because it wants to keep this rivalry with Wesley, and then it goes and plays Empire 8 schedule. Yeah, Empire 8 for them. Wesley, uh, Christopher Newport, who they played last week in the opener, is uh, you know, usually no pushover either. So, yeah, Salisbury um, takes on that schedule both by design and by the fact that they're, they're in a strong conference. Uh, here's a discussion that uh, <clears throat> was... Uh, or a question that was posted to our Facebook page earlier on Sunday evening when we posted the uh, that the new Top 25 was released. Someone uh, who I could tell was a St. John Fisher fan asking why Salisbury didn't fall after losing to Wesley, and of course there's a very simple answer. Wesley's the number three team in the country. You yeah. lose to somebody that the, the poll would tell you you're supposed to lose to. It's, it's hard to, to knock them for it. Um, you know, you could apply that same logic maybe to, to your vote if you're a poll voter about uh, Rowan, you know, losing to a D2 team, how much do you penalize them? Franklin losing to a 1AA non-scholarship team, but losing to Butler and losing to Mount Union. You know, Franklin is probably right there with Kane and Delval on this list of surprise 0-2 teams. But look who Franklin has played versus, you know, looking at uh, who some of the other 0-2 teams' losses have come against. And, you know, looking at uh, on the other side, some of the other, uh, some of the other 2-0 and teams, uh, we've talked about Lebval. We've talked about Brockport State. Um, you know, I don't say that uh, you or I are necessarily surprised about Salve Regina, but I think outside of maybe the general Newport, Rhode Island area, I'd say a lot of people are. Yeah, and the reason we're not surprised is because we know the program's run by by Bob Chesney, who was the defensive coordinator for Johns Hopkins the year they met Wesley in the f- final Quarters? eight. Quarters, yeah. 
and 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 they held Wesley to twelve points in that game. So you you knew, and you know, Hopkins doesn't recruit the same type of athletes that Wesley does. So you see a Johns Hopkins team that that puts together a scheme sound enough to to hold Wesley to twelve points in a playoff game. And I, I was there at that game, and it was rainy, but I, I don't think it was any excuse for that. Uh, you know, that's a coach who's 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 plugged into what's going on, and and you know. Going up to Salve, it's a, it's a tough place to be because Rhode Island's not a big football state, but at the same time, it's also a good place to recruit to because Newport is a beautiful place to be. And and you know, you, if if you can get kids sometimes to certain campuses and you can just bring them on campus, yeah. And then, you know, if if you don't have a football tradition, you're promising playing time. You're you're promising. You're saying, look at me as a coach. Here's the things that I've done. Uh, you want to be a part of this? You can do that. You know, you you got a fighting chance, and we've seen Salve, you know, over the first couple of years. You know, I I don't think I remember talking to because I did the the Nefsi preview that year for kickoff. I remember talking to to Bob about this. He didn't he didn't get the job um, right away after the season started, so he didn't get to recruit necessarily all of his guys because recruiting was already underway at that point, and you just, just kind of dive in with, uh, with with what was already happening. So this is really his his first or second group of guys in there. And, you know, he, he also said they, they went out and they wanted to play Union. They wanted to play Montclair State because they had to play teams outside of New England to get that recognition. And when you beat both of those teams like Salve has, you know, now we're starting to take notice of them. Yeah. And, you know, I think we knew Montclair State was going to be down a little bit this year. Uh, they had, you know, they got, I, it looks like, 10 points in our preseason poll. They had a, a, a bunch of... Uh, you know, they had a bunch of new starters at positions and that sort of thing. It looked like they were going to be, you know, turning over some positions pretty quickly. But Union was pretty good last year. I mean, Union bounced back. They had one uh, tough season a couple of years ago, but, uh, you know, bounced back to go 6-4 and four last year. And I think people think still fairly highly of them in the Liberty League this year. So I think they may still be a contender for the conference championship there. But, you know, for compared to what the rest of the league is doing and, and almost across the board, uh teams in that league are not only not playing strong teams out of conference they're playing their non-conference games against teams from the other division in the conference or against uh, teams from the ECFC and neither of those is uh, a way to prepare yourself for the playoffs and and that's how you can tell that that's that Salve and, and that that coach Chesney has his eye on something beyond just winning the NFC title you know this is the last year though the the only one team out of that group of 16 will make the playoffs. So, so next season they're splitting into two eight-team leagues. They'll, just by the odds, you know, you have a better chance of getting into the playoffs. And you start thinking down the line, if you really want to build a, a championship program or at least a playoff caliber program, you have to play the type of teams that you'll see in the playoffs. And, and Montclair State, you know, remember Salve played them last year 18-7. to seven. They lost that game, and they won this year, sixteen to seven. The scores are very similar. Obviously, the the win turned around, but they weren't blown off the field last year. And Montclair had a much more senior laden team last season. So, I think he's getting the and that program, the, the Seahawks program, getting what they want out of that game, which is to see what it's like to face you know guys who can play in the NJAC, guys who can play in the Liberty League, and if you can compete with them, you can compete in the in the NFC. McAllister this past week uh, put up probably the best win that they've had, uh, certainly since they left the MIAC, and, and goodness only knows how far back you have to go. I mean, our 
our uh, our online archived records only go back to 1999, where they were two and eight and one and eight in the conference. And for those who don't know, they've been playing as an independent in football since the 2002 season, and playing a schedule that has consisted primarily, or at least significantly, of uh, teams from the UMAC, which is uh, traditionally one of the bottom-rated conferences, has a bunch of relatively new programs uh, to football and programs that are new to Division Three. So when McAllister uh, beat Crown, which was winless last year, uh, 53-6 in the opening weekend of the season, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure uh, I necessarily even noticed Uh Maybe we can blame on the fact that I was on the road for four days that weekend. But you go and then beat uh, Concordia, Wisconsin, which is a, a middle-of-the-pack team in a conference that's, you know, two or three notches out of a 26-notch ladder uh, above them. And that's uh, that's a pretty significant win. I really can't think of a, a better team that McAllister has beaten, even though there have been years where they've gone 4-5 and five and 6-3 and three and 5-5 five and five in the uh, years since they left the MIIC for football. Yeah, Pat, here's another one off that 2-0 and list that we're a, a little bit surprised by, but also fits with this discussion that we're talking about, where you have to play teams that challenge you if you plan to do something besides win your conference. You want to not just win your conference, but you want to get in the playoffs and, and be able to compete when you're in there. Albion. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Albion with the uh, with the surprise win against Wheaton. Uh, you know, Wheaton playing without Garrett Metter, the preseason All-American quarterback who got hurt in the uh, opening game against Benedictine, but uh, still uh, Wheaton not only in it, but leading it uh, up until, uh, or, well, not up until, but, uh, you know, leading it until Spencer Krause had a, uh, a late touchdown to give them the, uh, the 22-21 victory. And here is what uh, Wheaton coach Mike Swider had to say about their loss to Albion on Saturday. Uh, we didn't start out well, and we didn't finish well, and normally when that happens, you don't win. Uh, we started out a little bit flat, and I think we came out real well, and then we didn't finish the game when we had an opportunity to finish it, and that's what hurts and that's what stings. Uh, but the most important thing I think our kids have got to learn is that, you know, you got to play for 60 minutes. You have to. You just you cannot play part of a football game. you got to play the whole game, and every play is important, and every play counts. And as cliche as that is, it fits with with what you have to tell your players as a coach, because uh, especially if you're you're a team that's a highly ranked, consistently successful, used to being successful, you know, like Wheaton is, you can't just necess- you don't necessarily just dominate teams like like Albion or dominate teams from lower leagues just by showing up, and you know that's what. Whitewater talks about every week. That's what Mountain Union talks about every week. First thing they do, both of those teams take their opponent seriously. And if you don't prepare, like you, you can get beat by the team. You know, you might get beat by them. And, and so you, you, you can't get ahead in games like that and get complacent. And uh, you can't be sloppy in that, in, in that week of practice leading up to it. You know, and, and it's human nature. It happens. But it, 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 those other teams can, 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 can make you pay. And, you know, you look at the the box for this uh, this Wheaton Albion game. You know, nothing really jumps out. There wasn't a big turnover margin. You know, each team had uh, one one turnover. They you know the yardage doesn't jump off. Albion two seventy six, Wheaton two forty five. You know, the the really the the thing that impressed me 
from just from looking at again, you know, not being able to see the game, but but looking at the the breakdown from afar, uh, Albion putting together a 19 play drive in, in the third quarter. That that shows you that you know just because it's a team from the from the MIAA and going against a team from the CCIW, you know, clearly there was a sign there that that they could compete. And, and you know, we we've uh, we heard of Clint Orr before, running back for Albion. He's, he's uh, you know, highly, highly touted guy, but it's nice to, or it's interesting, I guess, to see that Albion's put together a pretty good team around him and, uh, and they weren't, you know, demoralized coming off that last, last year, you know, they made the playoffs, but got, got crushed by Whitewater in the first round. Nice to see them still scheduling up, trying to play tough teams like Wheaton. And, uh, and, and finally, you know, for one MIAA team besides trying, uh, playing somebody tough has paid off. Uh, two things, one in Wheaton's favor, one not necessarily in Wheaton's favor. Um, you know, Mark Hibben, who's one of their leading wide receivers, uh, a guy who really broke out last year and then had seven catches and a, a pair of touchdowns in week one. Uh, he's injured and he did not play either. Uh, we mentioned, of course, that Garrett Metter was out. You know, Jordan Roberts, the guy who backs him up, uh, you know, was only the starter for, I think, basically the entire season in 2010. So it's not like they're bringing some guy completely untested uh, off the bench. This is a guy who... Uh, has been in this situation before for Wheaton. So, uh, you know, take that uh, good cop, bad cop there um, and see if that helps you. Um, you know, I don't know if that, if, that, if that balances out or anything, but at least try to get all the data out on the table just so you, you guys know. And Wheaton fans know that we know uh, that it's not just uh, Garrett Metter who's out, but then we want you to know that we know that – Jordan Roberts is a guy who can do this, and and neither of those guys plays defense, so has no real bearing on whether Albion can put together a 19-play drive. Did I get all my disclaimers out there? I, I heard just about all of them. I don't think there's any possible ones left. Also in the MIAA, maybe not a team that's going to end up contending for the playoffs, but Kalamazoo off to a 2-0 start. Um, this week against Manchester, uh, not notable in the sense that I think uh, Kalamazoo is been capable of beating Manchester. Uh, this is notable because it's a four-overtime game. I think the more surprising win is uh, the previous week against Rose Holman. I think that um, you know uh, Kalamazoo beating Rose Holman is a is a step up. That's something I did not expect. You know, and something Pat that we forget when we spend a lot of time talking about the Mount Unions and Whitewaters and Mary Harden Baylors and Wesleys of the world is that for some programs especially if they're in the midst of a turnaround or they're under a coach who's you know been there for a couple of years and has brought, only brought in just a, two or three recruiting classes, is, you know, all the wins are good wins. You know, there are no bad wins for, for a lot of programs. And, you know, we, we get on some teams for, for not winning impressively enough, but, but in a, term, a team like Kalamazoo, um, you know, opened a new stadium this year and it has been sort of, you know, recreated, I think, the, the identity, at least from a, you know, from, from a national perspective, of that program to one where they could put up some numbers on some weeks and, and sometimes they'll do some eye catching things, but not quite yet to the level where they compete regularly in that conference, getting off the two and O start is the first step to doing that. And, and especially in, in someone, a conference like the MIAA, which can be so wide open from year to year, you know, at one point we thought maybe trying was going to be a dominant every year type of team, but, it, but, Right now, you know, you look at the, the, the two teams that are impressive uh, from that conference, and it's not just because of the records, but it's it's Albion and, and Kalamazoo, and Hope had a nice win too. But other than that, you know, that's that's pretty much all that's caught my eye so far. Uh, Norwich went up to St. Lawrence and won. Uh, you know, Norwich, 
a team that used to be in the Empire 8 and used to be at the bottom of the Empire 8 now is uh, one of the teams that's a perennial contender in the ECFC. But more than just Norwich, Keith, I mean, you and I have looked at the ECFC each of the last you know couple of years, obviously, in doing our uh, preseason conference rankings. And even though the ECFC hasn't played a whole bunch of world beaters, they're 10-6 and six right now as a conference. Uh, and, you know, 10 out-of-conference wins, I think, is more than they had last year and possibly more than the previous two years combined. Yeah, and you, you compare that to a conference like the, the Heartland, which is 2-15 and 15 right now. You know, all the, every team in that conference is, is 0-2, and and, and, uh, or just about every team, you know. It, it's a big deal, I think, for, for conferences as a whole. And, and, you know, obviously everybody competes separately, so it's not too many people think or, or look at things through this prism, with, through through which we look at it. Except when we break, you sit here and you break down the, the records, or you look at the standings after you know you try to digest a whole week, and you go, "Wow, every team in the ECFC is doing a little better than I thought they were going to be doing." Um, that's that's a you know it's a good thing. And, and you got the, the Gallaudet win this weekend. I thought was that was probably the the eye catcher along with along with Norwich. And also Anna Maria beating Maine Maritime. That's a that's a bit of a surprise as well. I mean, Ma- Ma- Anna Maria had lost the first 27 games, I believe, in the uh, program's history and now has won three of the last four. I, I don't know what's happened to Maine Maritime, too, because that was, a, you know, another triple option team. And they had sort of been running it to perfection for a couple of years. They had a great fullback in, in Jim Bowers. But it looked like they were they were going to be the type of program that they recruit guys who kind of fit the mold or guys that can grow into being good. And, and they were good every, every season. They were putting up just ridiculous rushing numbers and uh, really right up through the first half of last season and then fell off last season. And I thought it was due to injury, but yeah, you, you Anna Maria beats them. Now it makes me wonder a what's happened to them, but also you have to tip the hat to, to Anna Maria. Back up into the top 25 for a little bit. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, St. John Fisher and W&J. I, I know, Keith, um, you picked that as your uh, potential uh, top 25 team to get upset. I don't know if you know about this, but you took a little bit of heat on the Empire 8 board for saying that. Um, I tried to you know, make sure that they understood that when we do this every week, Keith is almost always the person in triple take who gets the last take. And usually you'd think that's a good thing, but actually it's probably a bad thing because... Ryan Tips and I may take the easier ones before he gets a chance to make a pick. So, so Keith is, I don't know, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about whether you thought you were left with taking that pick or, or you, you, uh, you thought you had something because you very nearly did have something. Uh, I, I guess a little bit of both. Um, you know, you, like you said, Pat, you know, you guys, you just by the nature of how our work weeks all shake out, uh, I, I usually am the last one to write it. And um, sometimes you guys too do take the obvious ones, but I think that was a legitimate pick. You you look at um, St. John Fisher and Thomas Moore going toe to toe the week before, and Thomas Moore is the team that's been to the playoffs, but W and J is is usually right there with them. And uh, W and J is also a team that's that's when when they have a have a group, you know, that's been together for a couple of years. They're offensively pretty explosive. We've, we've seen them, you know, usually you got to go back a little further. Usually when they have a good quarterback, they're good. If you want to break it down to be that simple. And, and they got off to a really a great start on, on Saturday, outgaining St. John Fisher, 246 to 33 in, in the first half. And, you know, we're, you know, getting tweets pouring in going, I can't believe the game is still close. You know, they should be dominating Fisher and it ended up coming back to bite them. And that's, to Fisher's credit, it's it's one of the things that you see championship teams do. They, they don't pack it in when 
part of a game goes poorly. You know, it supports the quote that Mike Swider made earlier in the podcast. You got to play the whole 60 minutes. You really have to have to finish off games. And, and W&J wasn't able to do that. You know, St. John Fisher won first down in the first half and still finds a way to win. You know, put with you know a 91-yard touchdown pass in the fourth quarter is the play that that makes the difference in the game. You know, you, you'd figure W and J at that point, all all you want to do is not give up a big play, and, and they ended up giving one up. You know, sometimes you can't stop it, and so you give a lot of credit to Fisher. But I think um, from from what we'd been told, what we read in kickoff, we thought W and J was going to be pretty competitive this year, and and I'm not surprised, especially to. Uh, with St. John Fisher going to W&J for that game. That's a pretty significant uh, road trip. You know, we t- the the standards for W&J have changed so much over the past decade. You know, I, I've already forgotten. Oh, you said pretty competitive. I mean, pretty competitive is usually what uh, would used to say that'd be a bad year for W&J if, if the way you were going to describe them is pretty competitive. But they've had a couple of, you know, not so impressive years the last few years yeah thomas morris taking the baton from them in in the pack you know, we used to make the joke pat that it was the president's athletic conference wj's nicknamed the presidents and, and that's how i got that name because at one point it was like you know 18 of 20 years they'd won the conference or something like that i'm, I'm remembering or making up the number off the top of my head. <laughs> but it was so absurd it was nobody had dominated their league outside of mount union the way that Washington and Jefferson was dominating their league. And so from, you know, from an interest perspective, it's good to have uh, Thomas Moore in the mix. It's good to have, you know, St. Vincent be a team that was capable of, of upsetting WNJ last season. Although they're on the 0-2, a little bit of a surprise 0-2 list, I think. Um, you know, there was a year where Waynesburg made the playoffs, a year where Teal made the playoffs. But for most, most the whole time we've been doing this thing, and, and even before that, WJ has been the, been the class of that conference, and it's not a surprise when they're they're a little bit better than pretty good. And then we've got the uh, Redlands North Central game, the uh, the game which I think had the the result that maybe people probably expected, unlike the way that that game went down last year. Yeah, you're right. Last year, North Central went out to California, thirty five twenty nine upset, um, and it helped. You know, between Cal Lutheran being competitive with Linfield and then Redlands uh, winning this game. And then also Redlands finally, after all the years, they go eight and one by losing the one game to Oxy or losing the one game to Cal Lutheran, finally getting into the playoffs. Um, you know, respectable game uh, in the first round of the playoffs, losing at Mary Harden Baylor. You know, it, all that put together earned the, the Skyac a lot of respect. And so now we want to see okay, now it's Redlands' turn to go out to Illinois. North Central's already a little down because they they lost last week to to Wisconsin Lacrosse. They know they need this one. They can't go in and fall in that same hole that you know, Harden Simmons and Kane and Montclair State and Delval all end up falling into the zero and two hole. North Central's you know playing not really for its season because you always have the CCIW schedule. But but if you, if you consider yourself a top team, you got to win these kind of type of games. And so it was a big clash and both teams had a lot to play for it's you know redlands opener which is a big big advantage for north central north central playing at home north central maybe backs against the wall a little more but but really score wise north central dominated but if you look at total yards um redlands was right there with them and so the story of this game i think was redlands five turnovers the uh, you mentioned Harden Simmons and Harden Simmons played at Linfield this past week and i'm reminded of you know when you and i went out there in 2007, I think, 
Uh, I was just reading that uh, I was just reading that around the nation again the other day. And if you want to get a a good feel of what uh, of what D3 football is like in McMinnville, Oregon, you can go back to Keith's page and look under the little archives section and find. Uh, the columns from 2007. Take a read of that because it's a, it's uh, it was a read that I enjoyed uh, even now five years later and, and having been on that trip myself. But uh, again, kind of similar to uh, the way that game went down the last time. Uh, another high-scoring affair at the last. It's not the last time they played, but it's the 2007 game I'm referencing. Um, the uh, uh, anyway, a high-scoring affair that uh, Linfield goes on to win 49-35. And I had that same thought when I saw the final score. It reminded me of that game, the year we went out there. You know, the year we went there, the score was 52-42. Uh, but it was Linf- you know, it was Harden-Simmons at Linfield, same week in the season, early in the season. Both of these teams you know, expected to be one of the top teams in, the, in their own conference in, in Northwest and American Southwest, two of the strong conferences in D3. You know, also stuck on those D3 islands, so they got to you know, schedule games against each other just to get a challenge. And, and so they're willing to travel from Texas to Oregon, Oregon to Texas to play this game. And, uh, you know, the, the, the casts were very different, obviously, from the last time we went out there. But the storyline was, was, I think, fairly similar. You know, back and forth game early in the game. And then uh, Linfield put, put together a 28-point run on, on Saturday, you know, in 2012. And uh, gets probably the most impressive win They'll have, um, you know, um, maybe all season. I'm trying to, you know, Willamette looks pretty good. Cal Lutheran next week, though. That's right. You're right. You're right. So I guess it's important for Linfield, especially if the conference is down a little bit, to play this Harden-Simmons game, to play that Cal Lutheran game next week. You're right. Uh, I skipped right over that. But, Lin, you know, this game and next week's game tell us a lot more than the opener against Menlo did. Uh, Menlo was always even when they were in D three, you know, they they've moved to NAI now, but um were always an up and down program. I mean, it's hard to tell what they are from year to year and, and Linfield crushed them in week one. They also crushed Harden Simmons in a lot of ways. Five hundred and sixty three yards of offense, although they gave up five hundred and three. Uh you know, five different players caught touchdown passes, Mickey Inns, you know, four touchdown passes, um or four or, or yeah, he had four of the touchdown passes. Josh Hill uh, 195 all-purpose yards, 309 yards for Mickey in. So, you know, the the offense looks good for Linfield. They got to fix their defense. But you want Harden Sims to come out and give you that kind of test. And so I, I imagine they feel pretty good about themselves, but they know uh, they're going to have to play a little better next week against Cal Lutheran. One other West Coast game I wanted to briefly touch on, uh, and it's kind of similar to what we were talking about with Rowan, Merrimack, Delaware Valley uh, earlier in the podcast, uh, and that is Pacific going down to Occidental. And does that say more about how much Pacific has improved, or is it going to be a really, really long year for Occidental? Because when you lose at home to Pacific by uh, by that kind of margin, that's not a good way to start your season off. Well, it really isn't. And again, Pacific in the same boat. With maybe you know if you're your East Coast listener, maybe somebody like Stevenson, a program that uh, got just gotten started, has had some impressive moments. Uh, it's, you know, but now they have a, a real impressive win, and, and you do, I, I, Pat. It's hard to answer that question personally. I think it, it maybe says a little more about Occidental being down this year, but I don't, for a fact, you know, it's hard. It maybe Pacific is is is. You know, that's the first step to them being pretty competitive. And then all of a sudden we'll see in year, you know, three, year four, they, they'll really be uh, a serious contender. You know, it didn't take Birmingham Southern, but four or five years to be pretty competitive. Um, 
We've seen it happen way down south. I think LaGrange was year three, maybe when they made the playoffs, something to that effect. But you know, it, it can happen it can come together for a team like Pacific. But but if you if you made me choose here on the podcast, I'd say it's looking like a probably a pretty rough year for Occidental because remember Pacific went down to Oxy for this game. I made you choose, I guess, uh, and we'll uh, we'll let that go with that. And look forward to next week, uh, week three, where there's a a bunch of great games. Uh, you know. Wesley's uh, Wesley's gauntlet doesn't stop. They host Mary Harden Baylor. That's a game between the number three and number four team in the country. Uh, I mentioned Linfield uh, going to Cal Lutheran. Uh, the Tommy Johnny game, uh, Keith St. Thomas at St. John's. Um, you know, as much as any other year in which this is a big game for St. John's, I, I think it's even more so this year just because, uh, you know, first of all, St. John's is kind of back on the upswing a little bit. Um, you know, shouldn't have had any trouble with Northwestern and they didn't. Uh, and then they, uh, uh eventually, uh, got two late scores to, uh, to beat, um, to beat Wisconsin Eau Claire this past weekend. But you're know, just remembering how demoralizing their, uh, their, the route was last year between these two teams, you know, a game in which St. John's lost 63 to seven at St. Thomas. This is a game that's, that game's been sticking in their craw pretty much ever since last year and now they get uh St. Thomas coming back up there and St. Thomas, you know, look is is still is a little young at the key positions on offense too. Yeah, I think for for St. John's, Eau Claire is a good win for them. That's a that's a usually a sign of, you know, what kind of St. John's team you're going to see every year too because that's the first, you know, the non-conference test, but they've played that game for years and and maybe ha- I'd have to go back and look at it, see how much of a barometer it's been. But seeing them win that game actually had me put them sort of near the bottom of my surprise 2-0 teams list, you know, St. John's, only because they struggled so much last season. And, and again, St. Thomas are 2-0 right now, big win over River Falls. Um, but, you know, but what does that, you know, what does that mean? Um, St. Thomas, I don't think quite as powerful as they were last year or the year before. So that Johnny Tommy that, or Tommy Johnny game, we'll call it that for right now. Right. Are you followed by whoever, whoever. <laughs> Whoever won, last- whoever won the last game, that's right. They get the naming rights from us. So, so right now it's a Tommy Johnny game. But you know, can you believe it's already that time of the, uh, the season? We've already played Wesley Salisbury. You know, we the 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 Merchant Marine Coast Guard game in the in the Soup Bowl. Those are always early in the season. But uh, but you've, we've had Co Cornell already, and you know, again we've mentioned the Route 13 and and already Tommy Johnny week. It's it's a uh, you know that's a great thing about Division Three. There's so many great rivalries that it's it's every week and it doesn't stop. Um, I think that's going to be a huge game next week. I almost feel like St. John's really needs to have a real fantastic season this year, uh, and it's not just because they went six and four last year, Keith. But if you look at it's now three of the last four years they have lost multiple conference games, and that is just not, you know, the way it had been the previous decade for them. St. John's has, has has lost quite a bit of that swagger, and to be honest with you, has lost some standing. I mean, when they got, um, you know, they had, I think they had one vote in our preseason top twenty-five overall, one vote. You know, whereas usually St. John's you could pretty much pencil into a top ten slot every year, no matter what they had done the year before. Yeah, and and Pat goes to show you that everything moves in cycles. That you know, things change over time. It references a couple of things we talked about earlier in the podcast. One was you know W and J was probably right in that group with St. John's, and I think Rowan was in that group too, where you'd always see those three teams 
probably ranked even a little higher than they deserve to be, except for the time, that, you know, the, around that 2000, 2003 time for the Johnnies when they were really one of the elite programs in D3. Um, but they were, they were for, you know, years after that, they, they maybe rode that. And, you know, W&J would always be ranked and Rowan would always be ranked. And now you're looking at all three of those teams are not even the class of their conference anymore, much less, you know, the nation. Um, and also references what we said when we were talking about Kalamazoo, where, you know, six and four year might be pretty good for a team that's on the upswing, that's building towards something. But for St. John's, six and four is like, man, what's going on with us? And and you do, you do have to wonder if you have too many of these seasons, how much of the foundation of the program um, ever gets rebuilt. You know, the, the thing about St. John's that's maybe – maybe unique to them in, in a way that it's not unique to very many places anymore because a lot of the longtime coaches have, have retired. You know, you talk about your Frosty Westering and Frank Girardi and, and coaches like that. Um, everybody in the St. John's program, you know, it, it is, has all been there for a long time. And I don't know that there's pressure to win anywhere in Division Three, and I don't know if anybody's more untouchable this side of of, of Larry Karras than than John Gallardi, but you, you can't. I just wonder how many how many years they can have. You know, four four losses and, and like you said, lose conference games because they are. I think now in Minnesota, you probably go to a recruit in in St. Thomas is above St. John's on the list, and for your rival to overtake you, that that's got to burn a little bit. Other games going on this upcoming week. Uh, Redlands hosts. Pacific Lutheran. Uh, Baldwin Wallace is at John Carroll, as we get to see John Carroll for the first time since they uh, pretty much destroyed St. Norbert over in Ireland. Um, we have, uh, there was something else here I wanted to spotlight that I've already kind of lost my brain on here. Hobart goes to Utica. Uh, it's a game that's pretty interesting. We mentioned uh, Union in Ithaca. That's a game between uh, powers of the 90s. Um, Waynesburg and St. Vincent, a game for, uh, you know, to see who might challenge the W&J slash Thomas Moore for uh, second or first place in the conference. Uh, I mentioned Lebval is playing Lyco. Uh, Brockport is uh, hosting TCNJ. And then, of course, we have the uh, MIAA NATHCON Challenge, the Northern Athletics Conference, uh, which is uh, uh, taking place primarily this weekend as well. And the other couple games I wanted to throw on that list were uh, North Central playing another game against a WIAC team, this time going to UW-Stout. Uh, Lacrosse against Oshkosh, the first of two meetings this season between the uh, the conference rivals from the WIAC. And then uh, center at WNL uh, could be a pretty good one in the mid-Atlantic, upper south, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> the upper south. <laughs> you know podcast when we start making things up <laughs> so it's probably time to say goodbye and we're under an hour this week so congratulations uh you get uh five minutes of your day back he's keith mcmillan i'm pat coleman and that's the around the nation podcast stay tuned all week as we have uh we have our uh, the d3 reports and highlight packages which you can see at the bottom of this page or they'll be on the front page a little bit later in the day on monday uh d3football.com play of the week on tuesday get your nominations in by the close of business on monday and by that i mean please 5 p.m central time so we have a, a chance to get these out to our voters uh we'll have around the region columns and then keith's around the nation column on thursday <laughs>